Well, good morning and uh, welcome. My name is John, one of the pastors here. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, um, we're glad you're here and love the chance to talk to you after the service. And thanks for worshiping with us on this beautiful uh, spring Sunday morning. Uh, we're beginning a series in the book of Luke. And uh, so I'd encourage you to turn to our passage for today. It's Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 56. Luke 1, 26 through 56. Starting in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who, has been, who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my tomb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us today, O Lord, as we just sang. Uh, Father, we need your spiritual food. We need your bread of life. We need your living water. Every one of us in various ways, Lord, we are dry. We are hungry. We are weak. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would take these words and feed them to our souls so that we would grow more and more in the likeness and power of Jesus. We pray that you would fill us this morning. 
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as a kid, uh, I remember having this book of uh, M.C. Escher's drawings, and maybe you're familiar with him. He was a Dutch artist. He died in 1972, and he was best known for drawing various optical illusions. I'm sure even if you don't know his name, you would recognize some of his drawings. He was fairly famous for drawing uh, staircases with people walking up and down them. But the thing is, the staircases never all added up. He drew a picture of an infinite staircase where everyone is kind of walking in a circle, but you can't tell if they're starting or ending. Uh, he drew one where there's a staircase that is going this way, and then there's a staircase flipped the other way, and another staircase this way, and people are walking on them in each direction, and your brain is trying to figure out which way is up. It's an optical illusion. And he was a master of them. If you don't know any of his work, you can Google it, wait till after the service, <laughs> and uh, you can check out some of his drawings. Optical illusions are fun. It doesn't matter how old you are. We love just that sense of our brains being tricked by something. Uh, I remember seeing a museum that had a special room in it that had a slanting ceiling and I think a slanting floor as well. And what you would do is you would uh, have a child stand on the side where the ceiling slanted down and then the adult would stand on the other side where the ceiling was taller. And you go outside the room and you look through a little peephole and when you look through it, because of the angles of the room, it looks like the child is bigger than the adult. Right? It's an optical illusions. They trick your brain. They skew the normal reference points that your brain uses to make sense of the world in order to make it look like something else is true. And I think there's a way in which a lot of our world is like an optical illusion, but we don't realize it. You don't realize it unless you can take God's perspective of things. You don't realize it until the end and you see how God has worked everything out and what actually matters. It also applies to, I think, miraculous things. It causes us to be skeptical of things that don't fit within our idea of what should work or shouldn't and what is most important in life. And we see this in our passage. Right here is Mary, a young virgin, and she's told some really remarkable things by an angel, things that even for someone back then would be very difficult to believe as true. And yet, the response that we see here and what the angel tells her and then Mary's response is, for no word from God will ever fail. And then Mary says, may your word be fulfilled. For Mary, what she used to make sense of the world was God's word. No word from God will ever fail. Her reference point for making sense of this world was not herself, not what she thought should be, not her own feelings, but God's word. God's word defined her reality more than her own circumstances, more than her own sense of things. And so the question I want you to ask yourself this morning is, what is defining your reality? What reference point do you use to make sense of the world? And is it a good one? Or is it leading you into believe some sort of optical illusion? And what I want us to remember this morning is just this. God's word will not fail. God's word will not fail. And we're going to just walk through the story, and then I'm going to apply it to us in a specific way. So last week, if you were with us, you remember we saw the first 
birth announcement of Zachariah and Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, this couple had wanted to have kids, but she was barren, and now they were too old to have kids. But a little detail like that didn't stop God's word from coming true. And then today, we have another birth announcement. And we go from a, last week, a couple that is too old to have kids, to a young girl who is too young to have kids. She's described as a young virgin, and, and the word used for virgin in verse 27, it, it really means someone who is very young as well. It mentions she's a virgin twice. Luke doesn't want us to miss that little detail. It's not just that she shouldn't be having a baby, but that she couldn't. She's not pregnant, yet you don't just magically get pregnant. But God's Word controls reality more than how we think things should work. Now, back then, a girl could get betrothed to be married as early as 12 years of age. And that betrothal, which was in some ways similar to an engagement today, could last for up to a year. Now, Mary probably isn't that young, but she's certainly a teenager. And these two birth announcements follow a similar pattern. One woman is too old to get pregnant, the other is too young. But when God shows up, he redefines what is normal or what is possible. And so Mary here is going about her business, and suddenly this angel shows up, and in verse 28 says, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. And I love Mary's reaction. I don't know if you caught it. She was greatly troubled by his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. She's not troubled that an angel just showed up and started talking to her. She's troubled by what he then started to say. What does he want from me? What's this angel's angle? I remember being at Home Depot recently, and a guy started talking to me out of the blue, which, you know, not too unusual, but he was extremely friendly, and he gave me way too many compliments, and I was beginning to get greatly troubled. What is this greeting? And after a few minutes, he asked me if I wanted to learn about an amazing opportunity to make some more money. And suddenly I realized why he was so friendly. Mary feels the same way. What's this angel doing? And the angel knows this, and he says, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And then he goes on to say, you're going to give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. The angel's saying that the one person who's got, who, whom all of God's people have been waiting for, this long-expected Messiah, is going to be your baby, Mary. Now imagine just the weight of that, what would be running through your mind when you hear that. But Mary's confused. Verse 34, how will this be? I'm still a virgin. And I know where babies come from. I'm only half the equation. And the angel responds, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now lots of people have speculated what exactly this means and certainly, there's some sort of mystery. How did God unite himself with Mary? And there's no any indication of some sort of sexual union here. Instead, the reference to the Holy Spirit, it uses similar terms to the language of the Spirit's role when he was active in creation back in Genesis 1, or the presence of God in the temple when he filled the temple with his Spirit. And so we could say that God's creative power comes into Mary's womb and does a work of creation, joining with her in some way to create a child. And what's the end result? Verse 35, so the Holy One to be born 
will be called the Son of God. The child will be truly human. Mary's his real mother. He will have part of her DNA, but he's also truly God. He will be rightly called the Son of God. He won't become the Son of God. He is, from that moment of conception, the Son of God. The, the fancy term we use for this is the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. It's this idea that there is a union of 100% God with 100% man into one single person, and that's Jesus. And this is important that Jesus had to be fully man because if he is going to be an acceptable substitute for us, he actually needs to be truly human, not a fake human, but a real human so that God can consider him our substitute. But if he's going to fulfill all of the law's demands and be able to take us all the way up to God, he needs to be fully God so he can actually achieve that. And then to provide Mary with some assurance, the angel tells her, Elizabeth, your relative is also going to have a baby. In fact, she's about to enter her third trimester. And think of what a source of comfort this would be. It's not just any day that an angel comes to you and says, surprise, you're going to have a baby. And how do you tell people about that, right? A lot of people are going to be skeptical as you try to tell that story. But Mary and Elizabeth have each other. One is too old to have kids, the other is too young, but both have been blessed by these angelic announcements and been told, your world is about to be flipped upside down. And the angel ends with, for no word from God will ever fail. And I love that line, because he's saying, God's word should define your reality more than what your senses say. Your senses can be tricked. More than your thinking, your thinking can be skewed, but God's word is perfect. If God says you're going to get pregnant, you're going to be pregnant, it will happen. I think this is an important thing even to talk about miracles, because we're skeptical of miracles today, and yet I want us to realize that any miracle is just a matter of your perspective, of what you're used to, and something, there's a, a data point outside of what you're used to. But you see, in one sense, everything, we are in a living miracle. Everything in our world, in our universe, even us, is miraculous. We only exist because God created it and he sustains it. We're just used to it. But, and because this is the only miracle we know, this normal life, our brain has trouble figuring out when something doesn't fit with those assumptions. But see, God is like the master coder, and so we get used to this you know, program that he's running called life, but he can easily tweak the code for how things work. And we look at it and we call it a miracle, and he just says, oh no, this is just a different type of science. See, this is why God's word needs to be the basis for how you understand everything in the world. More than your senses, more than your peers, more than your feelings, more than your culture, even more than your parents. See, God's word is what defines, creates, and sustains reality. It gives you a peek into the source code of what this world is running on. And Mary's response then is amazing. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. For a teenager, or for anyone, frankly, who was just visited by an angel, her, her response is remarkable. Right? She doesn't pass out. 
She doesn't, you know, scream. She doesn't have, you know, all kinds of these various reactions that we would probably have. Especially, I mean, discovering you're pregnant, for those of you who've been there, especially with your first child, that is always a life-changing experience. I remember when Lisa surprised me in our apartment in Philadelphia that she was pregnant with Molly, and that moment is seared into memory. And now imagine Mary here. When you're a teenager, you're not yet married. You live in a small town. Discovering that you're pregnant takes those emotions to a whole new level. And when you tell people, oh, an angel told me it's God's child, that's going to lead people to think that this pregnancy is not your biggest issue. Mary was betrothed, which, as I said, is similar to an engagement today. You were committed to each other, but you were not yet supposed to be sexually intimate. And so if Mary tells people this, they'd say, oh, sure, honey, I'm sure it was an angel named Joseph who did this to you. So what an amazing statement from Mary. May your word to me be fulfilled. We can just kind of imagine her thinking as she processes this moment. This is going to completely change my life. People are going to have a thousand questions. They're not going to believe most of what I say. But I am going to let God's word define my reality more than all the emotions I feel right now more than what rumors might spread around town, more than what Joseph or my parents are going to think, more than how I feel in a few weeks when my hormones are all over the place, more than in a few months when I have to pee every 15 minutes. God will be my rock, my defining reality. And I will trust that his word will last far longer than any of those things. And the angel leaves, and then verse 39 tells us Mary gathers up all her stuff, and she goes to the one woman who she can talk about these things to, Elizabeth. And then when she gets to Zachariah's house and sees Elizabeth, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy. And what a beautiful thing. Elizabeth then shouts out, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. Imagine Mary on that walk to go see her relative Elizabeth, and she's probably just bursting with all these emotions, fear, excitement, worry, joy. And she's wondering, how exactly do I bring this up with Elizabeth, right? Like, hey, by the way, did an angel come and visit you? (laughs) Or an angel visited me the other day. Have, Have you ever had that happen? But she doesn't have to start the conversation because Elizabeth knows, removes all the tension, and welcomes her like a sister. And she says, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And again, we see that theme. What will you believe? What will define your reality? God's word, God's promises, or something else? And then we get this real life musical. Mary breaks into a song. It's often called the song of Mary. My soul glorifies the Lord. One of the themes that we looked at last week was how when God's spirit manifests itself in this world, it is like rays of sunshine that create blossoms of life wherever it shines. And that is just as true as in this passage. When God's spirit shows up, it causes the blossoming of people's creative faculties. It unleashes artistic potential. 
it's not an accident that in these first few chapters of Luke, as we work through it, you're going to see people breaking out into poetry and song all over the place. It's like a real-life musical. One commentator wrote, Luke, the artist, has gathered and collected, under the guidance of the Holy Ghost, the stories which reveal the fact that when Jesus came into the world, poetry expressed itself and music was reborn. Now, we could spend a whole sermon looking at Mary's song here, but Luke's a long book, and I don't want to be in it forever. So we're just going to hit a couple themes quickly. One of the main themes you'll see as you look through it, Mary praises God for what he's done to her, a humble servant. And yet she says, I'm going to become one of the most famous women in all of the world. Then she praises God for how he works in the world. She, she looks and says, God doesn't pick the most powerful, the most beautiful, the most successful. No, he says, he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He takes rulers from their thrones and brings them down to the dust, but he lifts up the humble. He fills the hungry with good things, but he turns away the rich empty. It's like Mary in this moment, as the angel broke into her life, it lifts her up out of this world to gain a heavenly perspective on how things actually work. And what she realizes is, it is not what it seems. The rich, the powerful, the successful, that is an optical illusion. That is not what matters before God. That is not what is lasts. And here in this song, she's saying, so many of the things that the world is telling us, you need to be happy, you need to be successful, you need to have God's favor. This is the way to win. This is the way to have it all. Those things are like dust that will be forgotten. The child isn't actually bigger than the adult. Your brain is tricking you. We just live in this giant optical illusion where our culture is telling us these lies. We look at rulers, right? And you say, man, I wish I had just a little bit of their power. But Mary says, God will bring them down. And he lifts up the humble. We look at the rich and we think, man, if I just had a fraction of their wealth or houses or vacations... But Mary says, but God looks at the rich and he turns them away empty and he fills the hungry with good things. Mary is showing us that our perspective in this world is off. So many of the things that you think you need to be happy, you need to be fulfilled, you need to be satisfied, you need to be okay. When you take God's perspective, you'll see that those things that you are grasping for right now obsessing about tonight are way smaller than you think and they will be like little grains of sand in the vast reaches of your soul and they will not satisfy you and yet those who are humble those who don't have a lot those who are cast off by the world god sees them and he lifts them up and he will satisfy them in ways that the rulers and the rich will be jealous of We've just spent our whole life, we all are spending our whole life looking through this little peephole and thinking this is what is real. And we miss that there's an entire world that God has created and there's a new creation to come and that is what is real and that is what will last. So then she wraps things up in verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel 
remembering his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary's life has been flipped upside down, but it's like she's finally starting to see things correctly, that God's word is what defines reality. It is what is true. It is what is good. It is what is lasting. And she looks back to that promise made to Abraham some 17, 1800 years ago, that little promise that for years looked like it had been forgotten. For centuries, you looked at God's people and said, he's not going to make a great nation out of them. God's forgotten them. God doesn't care about them. Look, they've been kicked out of their land. Look, they can't even be in charge of their own land. And Mary says, no, that promise of God, which looked like it had been covered by layers of dust and debris and long forgotten about, God still has his hands on it. And one day he will pull that promise up and upend everything and show that this is what is true and lasting. God's promises will be true. So how does this apply to us? There's a number of things in which it does apply to us, but I want to focus really just on the one main idea that I want us to remember, which is God's word will not fail. All of us wrestle with what words to believe. And not just what I mean, like, do I believe in God or not, but, but more actually practically, that are, and are actually more foundationally. Like, what is it I believe will give me the good life? What is it that I believe I need if I want to be happy? Why am I here? Are God's commands good for me? Will God take care of me? And if so, why am I suffering so much? And we live in an age where the answer to those questions are so often, well, you've just got to look within yourself to figure out what you want. You've got to define your own reality. Right? And to have some outside reality imposed on you is seen as oppressive. And this is part of what makes it so hard to be a Christian today. Right? We, our culture tells us you get to define who you are. Ron Highfield writes, Obeying God today appears to be like surrendering freedom, and disobeying God seems like a way of asserting freedom. Submission to God looks like an affront to our dignity. What word will you believe? This word from God, his promises, his commands? And yet the whole world is telling you, but no, there is a better world outside of that. But I want us to see that our idea, our modern idea of freedom, that ability to choose your own and your best life, to dismiss what God has said, whether it's in regards to sexuality or money or power or any of his laws, to say, no, God's rules, God's standards are oppressive to me. But you don't see that when you say, I get to define who I am, that will only lead you to greater captivity and never satisfaction. Because you become a slave to yourself, a slave to your passions in the moment. Ron Highfield writes, when we do this, when we try to define, when we seek our own meaning within ourselves, We doom ourselves to perpetual restlessness and insatiable ambition. However high we climb, infinite heights will tower above us. Our true worth will always be in doubt. In our, in our wounded pride, we will proclaim our lofty status even more assertively to avoid despair. 
He's saying when you're kind of allowed to choose your own adventure, to choose who you are, all it's going to do is lead you to a path where there is no end. Where you realize the end is still much further than where you've come. And why is this? Well, because when you're the reference point for your own reality, when you tell yourself, oh, I know, only I know what I need most. Well, this is what happens. James Smith writes, insofar as I try to keep choosing to find satisfaction in created things, whether it's sex or adoration or beauty or power, I'm going to be caught in a cycle where I'm more and more disappointed in those things and more and more dependent on those things. And doesn't that describe so many of us today? You are more and more disappointed in all the things that we choose and we seek after and you think you need, and yet you find yourself more and more addicted to those same things. And you can't get free. We are really bad at knowing what we need most. As Augustine wrote so long ago, without you, God, what am I to myself but a guide to my own self-destruction? Are you tired of running after a hundred things only to be left empty again? Has your pursuit of finding yourself only left you more confused than when you started? And maybe it's because you've been trying to live in a world with optical illusions. And your soul, you've been trying to fill with all these other things, but your soul was made for God and God alone. And God is closer than you realize. So what we need to do is we need to stop trying to define our own reality. Stop trying to think this is what I need to be happy. This is what I need most. This is what I need to find satisfaction and realize the one thing that you need most is God and he is so much closer than you realize. Again, Augustine, you alone are always present even to those who have taken themselves far from you. After traveling many rough paths, you gently wipe away their tears. And yet they weep even more, rejoicing through their tears. Where was I when I was seeking for you? You were before me, but I had departed from myself. I couldn't even find myself, much less you. And what he's saying is that in that quest to find ourselves, we actually lose ourselves. And it's only in discovering God that you get to know who you are and what you were made for. And that is the good life. That is the reality that God defines. So will you let God's word define your reality? And what is that? Well, most basically it said, I'm a really screwed up sinner, and yet God loves me more than I imagine. That Jesus is my life. God is what I need more than anything else. And he alone can satisfy me. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that your word would become our defining reality. We ask, Lord, that as we struggle with wondering what is it I need most, we struggle with seeing, are you good for us, Lord? We struggle with knowing if your way is best for us. That we could have some of that remarkable faith of Mary who says, let your word be fulfilled in me. That we would have that perspective that Mary had to realize that so many of those things that we chase after will one day turn to dust. And yet, Lord, you see those who have nothing. You see the humble, and you lift them up into glory. So, Father, help us to put ourselves there.
and be used by you to discover who we really are and to experience the life everlasting. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.